Yes, into the 1980s, the, the previous two papers were, were commendably broad-ranging. Mine is a bit more focused. It's basically on the 1980s. I realise, of course, with, <coughs> with our chairman, uh, John, here, we enter into the realm of what, when I started out lecturing, was called the D.H. Lawrence phenomenon, where uh, a lecture in English literature would be, would, be, uh, <laughs> would, be, would be droning on about the works of D.H. Lawrence and the great man, and, and the author would then sidle into the back of the lecture room, put up his hand and say, well, it actually wasn't quite like that. <laughs> so uh, anything I say, I realise, is... is, is uh, not only vulnerable to normal criticism, but also to the fact of having, as I say, such a distinguished participant in the events uh, in, our, in our room today. So I'm talking about the Conservatives' legislation um, of the 1980s. Um, it amounted to, by any stretch of the imagination, a formidable programme of reform, uh, eight Acts of Parliament, including a Consolidation Act of 1992, that basically covered five main areas of trade union affairs. The restriction and then the elimination of the closed shop, redefining the strike and restricting picketing activity to narrow the range of legitimate strike action, putting in place rules governing the internal affairs of trade unions, strengthening the position of individual members against their trade unions, and establishing controls over political funds. There, I think, were two, were two chief characteristics of these acts. First of all, they were cumulative. Secondly, there was no obvious stopping point. They were cumulative in the sense that they started in an area then built on that in successive legislation. So, for example, secondary action was restricted in the 1980 Act and then outlawed in the Act of 1990. Public funds were made available um, for the conduct of union ballots in 1980, and then postal, <coughs> postal ballots were required for elections in 1988. The closed shop in 1980 required 80% of the membership to approve it, but then had been banned by 1990. In fact, an earlier act of 1988 had made them inoperable. The idea of there being no stopping point, I think, is illustrated in the provision of the 1988 Act that even when a strike had been called with a lawful strike ballot, a union could not discipline a member for refusing to abide by that ballot. In other words, having closely defined what was legitimate by way of strike action by w uh, and what was therefore legal, this was still overridden by the primacy of the individual's contract of employment. And I think that, that particular aspect caught many people by surprise. They thought the legislation, as it were, come to, an, come to a conclusion and then there was this fresh act, as it were, that, that seemed to take it, as it were, even further. These acts have been treated by the majority of industrial relations or legal academics as essentially anti-trade union and driven by the malign influence of, of F.A. Hayek. The few exceptions to that number saw them as necessary reforms dealing with the way trade unions had behaved over the previous 10 or 20 years. That is in things like mass secondary picketing, uh, the mass meetings, the car park meetings, as they were called, on strike actions, extension of the closed shop 
defiance of court orders, and the occasional harsh treatment of individual union members by branch officials or shop stewards. Uh, these views have clearly been given uh, great impetus by the public sector strikes of 1978-79, and Bill McCarthy, who I'll talk about a bit more later, who spent the 1980s arguing against the conservative legislation, um, believed that it was almost impossible to exaggerate the damage done by the winter of discontent to the status of the labor movement, uh, the trade unions and their relations with the labor parties. So what I want to do in this paper is just, to, in, in a brief paper, is to examine some of the principles that informed the reform of trade unions, assess their defense, defense of the trade unions from two particular sources. One is the, the two foremost academics that we've already heard about in Adrian's paper, Bill McCarthy and Bill Wedderburn, and also to say just a little bit about the, the, the work done in the TUC, particularly the Employment and Organization Committee. Um, Bill McCarthy, as was said earlier, was, was one of the, uh, uh, began in a sense his career really sort of developed as research officer in the Donovan Commission, um, played an important part of it in, in place of strife, drafting that, um, the white paper. Um, and in, in some ways was, was I think, uh, took a slightly different position from some of the other uh, Oxford school in believing that the fault of the Donovan Commission was not really dealing with the, what the role of the state should be in industrial relations. Wedderburn, as we heard, was uh, a, a major um, uh, uh, legal uh, industrial law academic, if you like, um, who advised the TUC, particularly in the 1970s. And McCarthy and Wedburn had worked together from, I think, about 1976 on something called the Independent Review Committee. And this was set up by the TUC to, to deal with those cases where people felt wrongly expelled from a union, from a closed shop, and to try and sort out those particular grievances that have become um, uh, achieved a certain notoriety. In other words, they were, they were very committed to try and work out some voluntary arrangements that would meet some of the grievances and criticisms of the trade union movement and to head off, as it were, statutory intervention. So they, they had um, a, a, a record of partnership as well as their dual significance uh, in their own areas. So I want to turn first to the uh, the principles, if you like, or the aspects of Thatcher's conservatism that I think bear upon this legislative program. The first is from Hayek, and we've heard a little bit about Hayek already, again from Adrian's paper. Um, Hayek, uh, it, partly, of course, about the, the, the malign influence of trade unions, the obstructive influence of trade unions, and so on. But I think particularly important at this time was his view about the impersonality of the market. Um, and this has been, um, it's in the road to his classic book, The Road to Serfdom, and it comes up in Brian Harrison's uh, very important essay on incomes policies. Um, and it, the idea is that the market removes you from some of the really difficult political engagements and bargaining that you otherwise get drawn into if you're a government over things like incomes policies. It provided, if you like, a kind of solution by limiting political responsibility. And there were two pieces of evidence, of course, uh, on that front. Uh, Dennis Healy's remark, I think that the closest he came to despair in the 1970s 
uh, was when the Ford workers rejected a pay offer that broke uh, policy guidelines. And on the conservative side, Nigel Lawson, uh, commenting that what they really wanted, uh, at this was in the 1970s, was an economic policy that removed the need for agreement with the trade unions. It would marginalize, as it were, the role of the trade unions. So that, I think, was an important uh, way of trying to approach uh, the trade unions and to think about them in relation to markets and so forth. Uh, the second principle was conservative individualism, uh, identified by Shirley Robin Letwin as the key theme in Thatcher's ideas and practice. The idea was that conservative individualism did not set out uh, the idea of a common goal to which we all um, agree or pursue, but provides a framework within which people are free to pursue their own projects protected by the rule of law. In the 1970s, she was talking about this quite a lot during her campaign speeches. And she frequently said the greatest gift any government could bestow on its citizens was the rule of law. Because once you had a secure law, then people's freedom to pursue uh, th their lives and their interests was, in a sense, guaranteed and protected. In the context of a major industrial economy, of course, where much of the focus was on the role of organizations in achieving a stable economy, it seemed really eccentric to start talking about the individual. And when in the 1970s uh, Callaghan's policy unit in Downing Street examined Thatcher's speeches, they found the preoccupation with the individual distinctly odd, but, they, but its force was apparently undeniable. And this did have, I think, particular relevance uh, for the trade unions, because their position, as we've heard earlier, was secured by immunities from legal action under the common law, which they would otherwise have been open to under restraint of trade or breach of contract. Now, labor lawyers saw these immunities as merely a particular example of a national uh, custom, if you like, in arriving at the legal protection of trade unions, a different route from a positive right to the, goal of the, to the goal of the right to strike. However, it was very straightforward for conservatives to argue for equality before the law and then to point to the immunities covering trade unions and strikes as being particularly anomalous. So conservative individualism and its faith in the rule of the law opened up a double challenge to the existing legitimation of trade unions and their activities by opposing both collectivism, that is the, um, the, the superiority, if you like, of majority opinion and the collective over the individual in the organizations, and also uh, challenging the immunities that protected uh, the trade union movement. Now, many of the critical writings about the Conservatives' trade union legislation have stressed the influence of Hayek, of the new right, of neoliberalism, and it was a very important strand in public debate and vital for the Conservatives in opening up the, the range of possibilities in public policy. A lot of them said they were actually, it was very important for them to start to think differently about the contours of British politics in the 1970s. Uh, one of, and really to challenge the point that we saw in an earlier slide from Ian McLeod saying we just have to accept the trade unions, they're part of the, the they're in a state of the realm. But Hayek himself was not much interested in the individual. Uh, that was not part of his category of analysis. And I think the, although the two are complementary, individualism and the impersonality of the market and so on, I think the dominant influence, dominant force in the political language and style 
with which the unions were, were, were addressed was Thatcher's, and that was individualism, and that was distinctive. Now, not all conservatives were very happy with the stress on the individual, which they saw as undermining community, because they saw community as a way of separating conservatism from liberalism. Community was given reality by organizations, institutions outside of the state that enabled people to cooperate, to form relations independent of it. It was like a civil society, I suppose, in our, in, in, or the modern version of what we think of as civil society. And some conservatives even went as far in, in, in stressing the importance of community to see its relevance in probably the most bitter industrial dispute of the 1980s, the miners' strike. And they said it was, no, it was notable that, that Scargill, in some of his defense of, of, or, uh, of the miners, stressed community, not just, as it were, energy policy and so on and so forth. But for all their um, misgivings of some conservatives about Thatcherite individualism and its fact it doesn't sit very easily with community. Um, if there was one policy, I think, which united all conservatives at this time, it was the policy on the trade unions. Um, and I think e e even those who wrote most uh, persuasively about community uh, argued that uh, when they looked at trade unions in the position they were in in the later 1970s, there was no doubt in their own minds they had to be reformed. Now, there was a degree to which the conservative approach was designed to weaken all associational interests at work. That is, those who try to control who should perform certain work. And this is broadened out to include not just trade unions, but also the professions, the university teachers, for example. Robin Harris, who was part of the of Thatcher's team at number 10, has since conceded that they might have gone too far in, in this regard. He wrote recently, those reforms were pursued in a manner that showed scorn for professional ethics, freedoms, and traditions. Now, there was clearly a, a, sort of a, a certain similarity between professional associations, middle-class professions, if you like, and trade unions in Britain, in the sense they both represented occupational interests, and the idea of trade unions as having a very a common working-class perspective was perhaps much less strong in Britain than it had been elsewhere. So there was a certain kind of overlap. And most, I think, uh, most notably, the Doctors Association the, B Association, the BMA, has been regarded as a particularly effective uh, trade union. In the House of Lords debates in the 1980s on the Conservatives' legislation, which I'll come, come back to a bit later, uh, Bill McCarthy tried to draw the common link between trade unions and professional associations as a defense of the closed shop and controls over entry to particular occupations. But this, in that debating chamber, had very little traction. Uh, nobody really wanted to run with that. And uh, the uh, predominant view, Wedderburn's view, I think, that really held sway, uh, was that the reform of the trade unions was a reflection of middle-class anxieties about working-class power and that became, I think, the predominant view. To look at the contrast between the thinking of the new right, as one might call it, and mainstream industrial relations, 
Uh, we can look at two lectures given in the Industrial Relations Research Unit in Warwick in 1987 to students on the unit's MA course. Uh, one was by Graham Mather of the Institute of Economic Affairs, and the other was by uh, then Lord McCarthy. They illustrate the contrast between the impersonality of the market approach and the institutionally laden character of the more traditional prefer preferences uh, expressed by McCarthy. Uh, Mather argued that the common law's focus on the individual and the, on contract and tort offered a more flexible body of law in the face of rapidly changing conditions, especially what he called the individualization of the labor market, than statute law, which tried to create a distinctive body of regulations and uh, of industrial relations. Major, Mather drew a distinction between minimalist measures and interventionist statutes. He's he, he singled out the 1982 Act as one that supported the law of contract and of tort. The contract of employment, instead of being seen as the embodiment of a fundamental inequality in the employment relationship, which had been the uh, key point, if you like, of Karl Freund and others that we've heard about earlier, uh, was on this perspective suitable for a more mobile, skilled labor force able to bargain on reasonable terms with employers. And the market approach to trade unions argued that once the centrality of the employment contract was recognized, there was no need for an elaborate statutory framework or specific institutions to regulate trade unions. Once collective agreements were enforceable at law and anybody going on strike was seen as dismissing themselves rather than simply suspending their contract, then sufficient discipline existed in the employment relationship to leave trade unions and employers to their own devices. This was justified because the employment relationship on this view was seen as far more equal than was traditionally assumed. The employers did not hold all the aces in the pack. They could not simply wait out pressure from work their workers, but were usually under some imperative not to lose business. The market, too, again on this view, um, gave pretty clear messages uh, about the price of labor. Trade union organization was not seen uh, as particularly uh, determinant of workers' living standards. Wages, again on this view, were, were, grew more rapidly in countries where trade union organization was weak compared to where it was strong. Those who worked in non-unionized employment found there was still a market for their labor. <coughs> How far did the trade unions support the dignity of labor if their effect was to diminish productivity and weaken economic performance? If the, if the employees wanted to go ahead and join a trade union and the employers would let them, that was fine. But once agreements were enforceable at law and damages payable for breach of contract, there was no need to restrict strike activity. So that was the minimalist view, if you like, uh, a market view of, as it were, the way forward in the 1980s from uh, a, a particular key exponent of it. Um, McCarthy's perspective had much more recognizable links with what had been in place in the 1970s. He believed the labor market embodied unequal bargaining power, collective bargaining was vital, and had to be supported by individual rights against employers and trade unions. To deal with fears that powerful trade unions increased costs and caused inflation, he proposed an annual economic assessment to guide what overall pay levels should be and how conflicting claims on resources could be reconciled. And this was clearly a long way from the idea of an impersonal market uh, in which these things were determined. 
Now, individualism, of course, was something of a, f of a fiction, or it was at least a very flexible concept. It was a fiction in the idea of a self-standing individual who, whose identity was untouched by interactions and connections with the community. That seemed to defy any common sense understanding of, of who we are. However, individualism had an obvious relevance to the debate over trade unions, even if it could be applied in radically different ways. So you could clearly use it, as I said, against trade unions, pitting individual interests against the collective, in line with some traditions of English thought and the common law. Or, on the other hand, you could stress the ability and freedom to associate with others in the fulfillment of one's interests that was an essential individual freedom. And Wedderburn uh, made uh, this contrast between the two in the book that we've uh, already seen uh, mentioned in the earlier talk, The Worker and the Law. As he said, protection for the individual must have some priority in any system of law. But it's precisely the definition of this individual. How far he is perceived as an individual trade of his labor power in the market, or as a worker whose employment demands collective organization to, pr to promote individual freedom, that would determine the judicial and legislative approaches to trade unions and their relations with their members. So individualism was rhetorically very uh, powerful. Uh, I referred to the, the Downing Street team of Callaghan being very surprised by it and so on, but in their papers, one can see Callaghan scrawling over them, we must not lose out to the individual, he puts in quotation marks. So it's rhetorically very powerful, but in, it, analytically, of course, could go in, in two different directions. So conservatives wanted to reduce the protection given to employees by individual employment laws in the name of the so-called free individual. Uh, so the labor interests wanted to strengthen them for precisely the, the same reason. Now, the conservative reforms of the 1980s that I began with, they didn't conform to this pure market model. Uh, they instead worked to restrict the impact of immunities for trade union organization and to strengthen the position of the individual member. They did this by limiting the scope of what could be defined as a trade dispute, and therefore restricting the immunity that uh, you, you could get from actions in tort, imposing stringent restrictions on the closed shop, and introducing re requirements for elections of union officials and strike ballots. Even if this program stopped well short of a sort of pure market one, it imposed a much stricter legal framework on trade union activity. By inclination, uh, Bill McCarthy and Bill Wedburn, the, the people I've already sort of highlighted, if you like, wanted to defend the traditional range of trade union action, to protect the closed shop, to allow a full range of strike action, to recognize the plurality of governance within the trade unions. So how far did these two figures reconfigure or press their case, if you like, in the light of the thinking that they found so rebarbative that was driving the conservative reforms, especially the focus on, as it were, the individual. McCarthy recognized that the prominence of the individual in political argument changed the way trade union activity should be defended. As he put it, to focus on the rights and freedoms of individual workers rather than on the immunities of their unions. However, even if the justification for trade unions was reformulated in this way, 
That is, in terms of the rights of members, perhaps, as a starting point, rather than the legal position of their organisations, the results produce the same components of labour bargaining as had existed in the 1970s. That is, the right to strike in sympathy with other workers, to refuse to work with non-unionists and therefore to uh, support the closed shop. McCarthy wanted to restore the broad definition of a trade dispute, allow a closed shop with a simple majority instead of the very high thresholds that the Conservatives had legislated for. He accepted the need for, for a code of practice on picketing, but wanted it to include the stopping of vehicles, which was one of the very particular sources of grievance in the picketing of the 1970s, um, should lorries delivering um, coke to coal stations, whatever, be, uh, be stopped by, by pickets uh, and the drivers be threatened with the loss of their union card or whatever, uh, or on the other hand, should pickets be powerless against the the incoming um, transport. So uh, that, was a, that was a very particular but, but sensitive area. The provisions for union recognition in the 1970s had, in the end, uh, proved ineffective against the object employer. And we, we saw the example of Grunwick, where that was particularly true, where an employer simply said, I'm not going to recognize a trade union, despite um, courts of inquiry um, urging that, that very action. And, and instead, McCarthy wanted legally back recognition of trade unions for wage claims if 30% of the workers supported this, with legally binding arbitration as the end position. There was to be a code of practice covering union elections and treatment of members, or, but also a right to hold meetings and ballots on the employer's premises and in working hours. And he upheld the traditional workplace meeting as a means of deliberation instead of the reliance on postal balance. So there's been some reconfiguration, some recognition that some things now have to be down in either codes of practice or in laws, but the actual sort of su substance, I think, is remarkably, in a sense, unchanged. This, I think, was consistent with M McCarthy's approach to trade unions and industrial relations. For him, it was about the importance of collective power of ordinary men and women against those, as he said, uh, nominally set above them. An argument based on rights was therefore reasonably consistent with McCarthy's belief in the value of collective organisation. Wedderburn's perspective, I think, was similar. Uh, like McCarthy, he believed in the ability of trade unions and membership groups to sort out all the practical balances between individual and collective interests. Like McCarthy, he characterised the Conservatives' trade union legislation as driven by Hayek's ideas about the centrality of the market and spontaneous order. And like McCarthy, he explored the possibility of reformulating trade unions' defence around positive rights um, rather than um, immunities. Both of them could see the presentational attractions of talking about uh, rights uh, rather than immunities. Um, and there, there was an attraction of the positive rights approach, I think, that was, that was more than just purely presentational. From the early days of the indiv individual employment legislation that we heard, again, heard a little bit about in the earlier paper, it was recognised that a focus on rights for the individual employee recognised that collective bargaining was not the only protection for workers <coughs> and that some of the most vulnerable people in the labour market, particularly in the service sector, would benefit from effective uh, legal protection. But there were no doubt difficulties about turning to positive rights rather than immunities. 
drawing up rights and legislation that would be proof against judicial interpretation uh, would not be uh, an easy task. However, the larger point that Wedderburn and McCarthy made was about the importance of the political context within which either immunities were being protected or rights being proposed. Their own experience in the House of Lords in the 1980s showed just what an uphill struggle they faced. Both McCarthy and Wedderburn represented Labour in the House of Lords and mounted a constant opposition to the Conservatives' legislation. Now, proceedings in the Lords were um, of limited significance politically, given the, the dominant weight of the House of Commons. But they do show the specific responses that McCarthy and Wedderburn made and the impossible task they faced in achieving any headway against the, any headway against the employment bills. One noteworthy aspect of this was the opposition that McCarthy and Wedderburn faced from Douglas Houghton. Douglas Houghton, or Lord Houghton of Saby as he, as he was in the House of Lords, had been a Labour MP and had teamed up with Jim Callaghan in 1969 to defeat the Labour governments in place of strife. And he'd also been General Secretary of the Inland Revenue Staffs Federation. In general, he was opposed to the Conservative legislation, believing it was one of a long line of attempts to reform the trade unions that was probably going to fail. However, he was far from being an unquestioning ally of McCarthy and Wedderburn. And we can see this in a number of particular areas. McCarthy opposed the ballot requirements for the closed shop and the acceptance of what were termed deeply held personal convictions as a reason for refusing to join a union as opposed to the more, more usual uh, category of religious belief. McCarthy opposed the prescription of ballots for industrial action union offices and the restriction of picketing to those involved directly in a dispute in their place of work. But Houghton had reservations on all these matters. On picketing, he believed this was close to the unacceptable face of trade unionism. On the clauses about the 1980 bill and ballots, which Wedderburn opposed because they took away the right of unions to run their own affairs, Houghton argued that not, not all was well with democracy and the trade union movement, that the trade unions lacked capacity for self-analysis, and that echoing prevailing opinion at the time, unions had far more responsibility for the welfare of the people than they really cared to admit. The larger point from Houghton's intervention was that industrial relations had become too conflict-ridden, and that trade unions were now in the public mind one of a group of powerful organisations not always to be trusted in their treatment of people and, and had at times a rather malign effect upon society. So these are just little exchanges in the House of Lords. I say they're not politically hugely significant. The interest simply is here was somebody who had um, a historic role, D Douglas Houghton, a historic role in, the, in, the, in this trade union legislation issue, um, reflecting quite widespread anxieties and doubts about the kind of line that McCarthy and Wedderburn were taking to defend the trade unions against the conservative uh, proposals, the conservative bills, as they then were. Within the TUC, they also had to recognise the uphill struggle against the conservatives' legislation. They had to accept that members liked ballots, that it would be dangerous simply to commit a future Labour government to sweep away the Conservatives' legislation, which many of their members have supported. 
a traditional argument in defense of trade unions had been that they were voluntary associations and like others should therefore be allowed to run their affairs without any significant state intervention. But as the 1980s wore on, it was accepted the public did not regard the trade unions as being at all similar to other clubs and associations and that their in impact on the economy, economy and society legitimated state involved in their affairs. So the traditional argument about a pluralistic society of voluntary associations and so on and so forth that indeed many conservatives had subscribed to was regarded in fact as, as, as not applicable to trade unions. And this was a reflection, I think, or, or, or the culmination of an argument that con conservatives such as Geoffrey Howard had been making at the time of the 1971 Act. Most of all, I think, the trade unions, trade union leaders, in that some of the trade union leaders in the TUC recognized by the end of the 1980s that the threats posed to them by the Conservatives' legislation had ceased to be a key issue for their members or for the working class more generally in the way they had been in the 1960s and 70s. In other words, the sort of political salience of the trade union question had simply uh, ebbed away. I want to finish up with just a much more general reflection, which I'm afraid does trespass a bit upon the next paper, actually. Um, and that's to see how the 90s may have been pivotal in, in to do with the purpose and status of labor law. The discussions within the TUC about how to respond to the conservative legislation had rested inevitably upon the assumption of a return to power of a labor government. In 1998, when uh, Labour was back in government, McCarthy urged the House of Lords to, as he say, rejoice, 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 in just the same way that Thatcher had, of course, told the country to rejoice, rejoice, rejoice at the Falklands War. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice at the chance to reverse the legislation in the Conservative years. But the terrain had, in a sense, changed. Uh, in this, possibly in this way, the leading law academics in the 1970s and 80s had seen their sub-discipline as one with a social purpose, to redress inequality that burdened the working class, with the trade unions being the principal instrument of that project. But the power and influence of the trade unions has waned. The working class's position has become more complex, and the character of social life much more varied. Instead of a focus on trade unions and conflict, New justifications in labor law have been sought in the regulation of the market as an aid to economic growth. But labor lawyers still seem to be uncertain about the route to take to serve their long-standing aim of promoting justice and democratic accountability in the modern economy. Just to take two recent collections, uh, the idea of labor law, a collection of essays, and the um, re-socialization of Europe, a volume of essays about when Britain was still in the EU, actually, about uh, labor law and the EU and so on. Um, both of those seem to, to, to be um, very aware that the uh, intellectual dominance of market economics had um, marginalized their, their activities. And the question was really, how do we see our way out of that. And so it's possible that coming back to McCarthy's rejoice, 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 that was the last sort of swan song of a particular kind of labor law, perhaps, that by the early 21st century, people were thinking, we have to find an alternative basis for what law and legal regulation will do. But I'll stop there, because that does take us on to the next.